Welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. Yesterday, the latest NCPOD, that's National Confidential Inquiry, into patient outcome and death, report came out. This time, the group turned their attention to aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and how well it's treated in England's National Health Service. Uh, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage represents about 5% of cerebral vascular deaths or events in the United Kingdom. What's different about uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage is that it occurs at a relatively young age, with 50% of them occurring in under 60 years of age. It has a 50% one-month mortality, and of the 50% that survive, 50% will be dependent on some form of care. Um, And the general population, if you look at autopsy reports, between 4 and 6% of the general uh, population will have these aneurysms. So it's something we should take notice of. That was Alex Goodwin, anaesthetist at the Royal United Hospital in Bath and clinical coordinator on the report. Management of aneurysmal SAH has changed in recent years as developments in imaging technology have allowed changes in practice. Professor Michael Goff, a consultant vascular surgeon in Leeds General Infirmary and the other clinical coordinator on the report, explains... If you go back 20 years, uh, patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage would be treated surgically. With the sort of advances in radiology, which uh, have been significant over the last 20 years, the ability of radiologists to manipulate guard wires and fine catheters into, into small blood vessels and then deploy coils to occlude them is sort of what is probably one of the big advances. And that's what led to, to the concept of, of coiling subarachnoid intracerebral aneurysms that were responsible for subarachnoid hemorrhage. In the 90s, the um, ISAT trial so then randomized patients to surgery or uh, coiling um, <clears throat> to see if they could identify which was the best treatment. And the results of that trial were pretty conclusive, actually. A relative risk reduction, I think, of 22% in terms of death or disability. Time from presentation to treatment was one area the report looked at. But there's mixed evidence and mixed advice about the optimal maximum time that patients should have to wait for. Michael Goff again. It's a slightly contentious issue um, in some ways. Uh, The guidelines are that uh, aneurysms should be controlled within 48 hours of intervention. And the reason for that, uh, sorry, within 48 hours of the initial presentation, the initial bleed. And the reason for that is because they may re-bleed. And we do know that uh, if patients re-bleed, the prognosis is is poor. they do much worse if, uh, in terms of survival. Uh, very few survive or, rec- or are discharged such that they're asymptomatic if they re-bleed. 
There are some guidelines published by the Royal College of uh, Physicians that say uh, treatment should occur within 48 hours. Uh, in Europe and the States, they tend to suggest that treatment should be uh, within 24 hours, uh, if possible. Now, there, are, there is a group of patients in whom early treatment isn't indicated. However, for the majority of patients, all the recommendations would be <coughs> that they should certainly be treated uh, within 48 hours. Part of the remit of the Antipod Review is not only to look at the evidence, but to look at practice in English hospitals. To do that, the group obtained patient-level data from cases of aneurysmal SAH and examines the care that that patient received. They followed them through primary, secondary and tertiary centres and into their post-discharge rehabilitation. Alex Goodwin explains the process. What you have to realise is how we actually perform our reviews of clinical care. So the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death has for 25 years been looking at areas of surgical and medical care. And our methodology is normally to sample a number of patients undergoing a procedure or suffering from a particular condition. So in this study, we looked at a three-month period, patients who had aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, and we reviewed in total 427 patients. We gather together a group of advisors, as we call them. These are medical professionals across the board involved in everyday delivery of care to this group of patients. So it will have included neurosurgeons, neuroradiologists, neurointensivists, neuroanesthetists, theatre sisters, intensive care sisters, so and physiotherapists. So all those healthcare professionals who deliver care. They graded the care looking at an not only overall, which is probably the key, mm-hmm. and what we must not forget is that 60% of patients had care that could not be improved, which is actually good news. Yes, 40% had care that could be improved, but 60% had good care. And when you say good there, you mean good as in optimal gold standard, as opposed to good within the system that is currently available? That's a very interesting question, because... We do not practice medicine in utopia. We practice medicine within resource limitations and within the hospital structures that we have. And I think they graded it with regard to what is available in 2013 within the National Health Service. If we start with primary care, let's just put a bit of background to it. 90% of the population will suffer from headaches in their lifetime. 4.4% of GP consultations are around headache. 30% of neurology outpatient uh, consultations are around headache. A full-time GP with 2,000 patients will see one serious headache a week. They will probably see an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage every eight years. So for the average GP, this is a rare condition. We did find that 17% of the patients in the study were seen in primary care before presenting to secondary or tertiary care and our advisors when reviewing these cases felt that in about 42%, that's 32 out of 75, the diagnosis was either delayed um, or overlooked 
and they felt that in a moderate number of these patients the outcome might have been affected. Mm-hmm. So the finding is that we need to make educational systems fit for purpose. So ensure that we raise the profile of subarachnoid hemorrhage within primary care education systems and likewise in secondary care education systems because primary care were not alone in overlooking or delaying the diagnosis of aneurysm or subarachnoid hemorrhage on presentation. So that was the principal mm-hmm. finding for primary care. Yeah. Um, you know, GPs have a difficult task. They see lots of patients with a variety of pathology. Um, and so it's not that we want to sort of um, beat them up about it, but just raise their awareness that a, of uh, what a severe headache might be and that prompt and uh, appropriate investigation and referral is required. And there are guidelines about how to, to do that. Yeah, the College of Emergency Medicine in particular have a guideline on managing severe acute headache. But that's in this emergency medicine module. It is, but if it was made more um, available, if people knew that there was a protocol to investigate a severe headache, I mean, essentially, when it pre- presents in primary care, it is the first step. Equally, it might present in an, in an emergency department. So if the primary care physicians know about the management of acute severe headache, they will just basically, the, the path, the sort of step in the pathway is just moved uh, one step further down towards the patient's presentation, essentially. So that's one thing for your GP colleagues to have a look out for after yep. this. Um, so then if we move to secondary care, uh, what did you find there? Well, in secondary care, there were a number of findings. Um, yet again, about 1% to 2% of presentations of attendances in emergency department are severe headache. Um, yet again, we found that nearly 70% of patients received good care in secondary care. But there were a number of other interesting uh, findings. Um, We felt that uh, there was a delay often in investigating these patients with CT scans. Um, There is a a national guideline for stroke that recommends they have a CT scan within an hour, but 67.9% of patients did not have a CT scan within an hour. we felt that in, there were delays in many parts of the pathway within secondary care. Um, an interesting finding is that, the, that those patients who were finally diagnosed with aneurysm subarachnoid hemorrhage, only 40% received nimodipine. And yet again, this is another guideline within um, the guideline for stroke, is that um, patients with aneurysm or subarachnoid hemorrhage should receive oral nimodipine as soon as possible because this helps in the further management and, redu- and promotes good outcome. Um, there were appropriate referrals. Uh, patients were referred to neurosurgical centres. Of note was that uh, a very small minority, um, about 15%, are part of a formal network of care, whereas another 70% are, are parts of an informal network of care. Now. In other areas of care within um, the NHS, the benefit of healthcare networks is well established. And I think one of the recommendations undoubtedly is that we should promote the establishment of formal 
networks of care for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, in tertiary care, there were delays throughout the system, but yet again, the overall care in tertiary care was good. Um, about uh, 68% of patients, the advisors rated the ca- their period of care in tertiary care as good. Um, what we did find was things like the provision of resources. So if you came into hospital between Monday to Thursday, 72% of those cases were treated within 24 hours. If you were presented to hospital between Friday and Sunday, 28% were treated in 24 hours. Now, these are figures that give an association. They're not causation per se, they're just association. So in our study, there appears to be an association with the day of the week you present and how quickly you might be treated. So that might be a way of quantifying the fact that for whatever reason you don't have neuroradiologists in the hospital at weekends, mm. um, the patients have a, you know, they have a 50% reduction in being treated within 24 hours. And obviously that's very topical at the moment. It is, it is indeed, absolutely. And of course, you know, whether this is due to a lack of resource or just a lack of neuroradiologists, which is much the same thing, yes. um, I don't know. But, you know, neurointensivists, neuroanesthetists, neurosurgeons for years have been available seven days a week. Um, But what, of course, has happened is that the balance has tipped between surgical intervention for subarachnoid hemorrhage towards the the less invasive interventional neuroradiology treatment. So whether this is just a lag time of the service catching up, I don't know. So the report is mixed, though generally positive, about the treatment of aneurysmal SAH throughout the NHS in England. One area of particular concern, though, is post-treatment rehabilitation. The report highlights the need and yet the dearth of targeted support for patients who survive the aneurysm. Mike Goff again. If you take 100 patients with a subarachnoid haemorrhage who survive... Uh, a year later, at least a third of them will have cognitive impairment. Um, And so potentially at least a third of them would benefit from uh, neuropsychology support. Again, if you take 100 patients uh, (coughs) with uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage who survive, only about a quarter of them Uh, end up with no symptoms, no disability, and return to uh, employment. So the potential role for rehab is significant, and particularly neuro-rehab. And, I mean, what we found in the the study was uh, that only 12% of patients received neuropsychological support, but either as an inpatient or as an outpatient. I think if you look both at tertiary and secondary care hospitals, because many of the patients are repatriated to secondary care mm-hmm. hospitals. And in the secondary care hospital, yes, they can provide physiotherapy, they can buy occupational therapy. But standard sort of neurophysiotherapy and neuropsychological support was not available. It was available in about 30% of hospitals. And what surprised us was that, to a certain extent, although it was more available in the, in the neurosurgical neuroscience centres, 
it was still not available to the same extent that standard physiotherapy and occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, it's recognised that the provision of specialised neurorehabilitation improves outcome and probably therefore costs society less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and undoubtedly, there needs to be um, an increase in the availability of that resource to patients who are unfortunate enough to suffer a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Yeah, why, why is there that little our study was unable to comment on that. It's just one of the things that we observed. And, you know, I'm not a politician, so I'm not going to comment on that Another key recommendation of the report is the creation of networks to promote best practice amongst hospital and more closely tie specialist tertiary services to secondary care. This has been particularly successful in improving management of stroke and outcomes have been dramatically improved in the areas where these networks were set up. But since that time, the NHS in England has been restructured. Critics of the reforms have talked of the fragmentation of services, so I asked Mike Goff how he thought these kind of networks could be created in the new NHS structure. I, 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 that question taxed me as well, um, because... It, <clears throat> At least in the days of strategic health authorities, you could uh, probably get something regional done uh, through them. And we are talking about the re- regional networks, really, uh, out of the recommendations. But of course, they've gone. Uh, I think, and, and the commissioners, uh, or commissioning groups, um, are not uh, nowhere near the same. I think that as far as neurosurgery is concerned, uh, it is, of course, uh, sub- subject to specialist commissioning. Uh, so I would suggest, I think, that the lead for this would, should actually come direct from uh, NHS England and the specialty uh, commissioning group because I think to get 660 uh, commissioning groups to uh, adopt anything or plan anything uh, would be futile, wouldn't it? And the full report is available on the NCPOD website. Links from the podcast page. That's all for this week. Next week we'll hear why reforms need reforming or how doctors in the NHS just get on with their clinical work despite the best efforts of politicians. Join us then. If you found this interesting or useful, then you might want to check out the rest of the podcasts from the BMJ and from all of our other specialist journals on our podcast page. That's podcasts.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.